Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 20, A Rosalia. The Romans had festivals for the grape, or more specifically, for wine. They also had one for roses. The Rosalia Festival seems to have been a movable feast rather than a pan-imperial holiday. It was a family affair, celebrated in various regions, at various times, any time between May and June, a time when roses are in bloom. Rosalia was an occasion for sprucing up the family tomb, a job which included the laying of wreaths and draping of garlands, chiefly of roses. As with any such semi-public, privately funded holiday, the extent of display varied widely depending on personal finance and, presumably, affection or lack thereof for the dearly departed. Some last wills and testaments set aside money for the survivors to do up the affair properly. Florists are not a modern invention. There are connections of that flower with its creation myths— Outside the halls of secular excess, the rose served in a number of religious capacities. It even had its own gods connected origin stories. Aphrodite, running through the woods to be with her lover Adonis, as he lay dying, gored by a boar. His blood and her tears, Aphrodite's, not the boar's, mingled on the ground and created the blood-red rose. You don't like that one? Okay. The goddess Flora loses a favorite nymph, and the gods all chip in to get her a new one. Or, rather, to load down the corpse with appropriate attributes. Thus, Venus gives her beauty, Pomona, Rosehips, Vertumnus, the god of seasons, scent, Bacchus, nectar, Apollo, the spark of life, and voila, corpse is a rose is a rose. If your tastes run to a morbid Grand Guignol, there is always the immortal classic penned by Ausonius and entitled Cupid Crucified. Basically, it describes various dead women who lost the game of love and take it out on Cupid. They snatch him from above ground to take him down to Hades where they... Well, the title gives you the gist of it. Wherever he bleeds, from there arises a rose, starting in the underworld and spreading to the over. Ausonius, one suspects, must have been a very strange man. Roses had a significant place in the army. Not surprising, given the nature of the soldier's trade. On May 10th and May 31st, coincidentally close to America's Memorial Day, Troops across the empire festooned the legion's standards with roses. A cult of the war dead has been suggested. Let Professor Hoey describe the matter. On the occasion of any festival in our list, there was held a parade of the troops forming the garrison. This would take place in the courtyard of the Praetorium, or in the Praetorium itself, where the commander of the garrison probably harangued the soldiers. The signa would be brought out from the nearby Domus Signorum and grouped by the altar where the supplicatio was to be performed. The festival was of such a kind that the main ceremony consisted in decking something with roses. What more natural choice than the signa, which, as we saw, it was customary to decorate on many other occasions. 
And then, what more natural name for the festival than Rosaliae Signorum? What indeed? Modern soldiers do not parade with flowers, to my knowledge, only flags and such, but they do lay floral wreaths for fallen comrades. The flower transcends the arena of the dead, however, and figures large in the halls of secular excess. In contrast to the above uses, the stories of conspicuous frivolity sound almost sacrilegious. Nero features in our first example, no surprise there. The story goes that Nero had his dinner guests recline on a large, rotating dining platform in his golden house. A room fitting that description has, in fact, been unearthed in Rome, even if the rotating platform has not. Lucky guests at those dinners retreated to the sight of delicate leaves tossed from on high, floating down and onto the gathered assembly. Also, a spritzing of perfume through tubes on high. It all added to the atmosphere, though it must have made for tricky eating, all that extra vegetal matter landing on one's food and drink. Or perhaps not. Apicius, Roman gourmet and cookbook writer, had a few recipes involving rose petals. The Romans were no strangers to strange ingredients. Years later, the adolescent and more extravagant, you wouldn't have thought it possible, Emperor Elagabalus was said to have let drop such quantities of rose petals on his dinner guests that at least one member was suffocated. Some scholars doubt this story. One could go too far. In prosecuting the case against Verres, the crooked Roman governor of Bithynia, Cicero claims that, as was the custom in Bithynian regions, he was carried by eight men in a litter, in which was a mattress stuffed with the bright roses of Miletus. He himself also wore garlands, one on his head and another at his neck and he would move a net of the finest linen with tiny specks full of roses to his nose. To be fair, Cicero did just say it was the custom in Bithynia. In any event, the chief strength of his case was massive theft of private property. The mattress matter was simply an attempt to paint Varys as no better than a loathsome foreigner. For the record, Cicero's prosecution has come down to us in full. So damning was the prosecution that Verry's own attorney advised him to a scarper. So much for the 1% of the 1%. A more modest but steady use of roses was common in less exalted households. The lady of the Roman house was expected to decorate the household altars with garlands and roses on a regular basis, calends, ides, and noons, according to Cato, in honor of household gods and the spirits of the ancestors. So what is it about the Romans and the rose? As well ask, what is it about the moderns and the rose? Granted, we tend not to drop them on dinner parties or stuff them into mattresses, but you probably would not raise your eyebrows if adorable small children spread rose petals down the center aisle before the bride walked down. Wreaths and garlands are a staple at horse races and rose bowl parades. Young men, I hope, still give their intended bouquets of roses. 
For better or worse, the rose is the queen of the flowering plants for the Romans as for a lot of moderns. Moderns have a richness of variety that would have staggered the ancients. On the other hand, the Romans at least had an expansive idea of how they could be used as decoration. The rose is not native to Italy, but rather another eastern import, and the original plant gave the owner a measly five petals and done. Pliny the Elder does write of other varietals called Cantifolium, hundred leaves, which we will assume was close enough to the truth to make the story of drowning in petals almost credible. He goes on to say that this particular varietal was nec odore nec specie probabilem. Neither in perfume nor in appearance is it attractive. Maybe not, but others certainly were, and where there is demand there will be suppliers. Professional florists met the Roman demand for roses. Wall paintings in Pompey's House of the Veti show a team of cupids running a garland emporium. A goat is seen carrying batches of fresh-cut flowers to the workshop. Inside the workshop, a rack displays garlands of various lengths, rather like feather boas. Farther along, on the retail side, a woman of quality is examining what's on offer. Garlands, if literature and contemporary paintings are to be believed, could be strung out remarkable distances between pillars in private houses and in public squares. How exactly they were created, kept from falling apart, is unclear. The Latin word certa, from Latin serere, to weave together. A woven how? Were stems entwined? Or worked into a rope? Or thin withies? There are various theories. Modern florists would have some useful input. We are told that the centifolium, the one without smell or beauty, was used to cap the ends of garlands, if that helps. Demand was such that it could not always be met, even from foreign markets. North America gets winter roses from Colombia, Rome got theirs from Egypt. These shortfalls were filled by substituting such unlikely things as flakes of animal horn, dyed presumably red. Pliny also mentions leaves of silver and gold. Pedant alert, Shakespeare does not say to gild the lily, he says to gild refined gold, to paint the lily, to throw perfume on the violet. And speaking of perfume, Pliny seems to frown on it. Perfume ought by right to be accredited to the Persian race. They soak themselves in it and quench the odor produced from dirt by its adventitious attraction. For better or worse, his fellow Romans in AD 79 did not share his distaste. See above Nero and his rotating dining arrangement with perfume spritzing pipes. Pliny may sniff at the stuff, but he was still willing to explain how it was made. And again at the house of the Veti, other cupids, presumably related to those making wreaths and garlands, are memorialized on other walls, illustrating what Pliny puts into words. The process is moderately involved. Perfume requires a medium to let it vaporize, lift off the skin, but not too fast, so you have competing media for accelerator and brake, Alcohol is standard in modern perfume. Ancients didn't go in that direction. 
though some say that Anaxileos of Thessaly was distilling wine when Augustus exiled him from Rome for practicing magic. They went for omphalicium, basically green olive oil, the best from venafrum, or unripe grape. The pressed leaves and oils were brought together, possibly boiling in a pot to get rid of residual water, allowed to cool and decocted into jars and small bottles for sale to women, and presumably men, of sensibilities more delicate than those of Pliny. There are variations on the above instructions, of course. The vinyl vignette in the Cupid Perfume Emporium involves a salesman helping yet another woman of means dry out the latest thing, she delicately sniffing the inside of her wrist, a scene repeated many million times since the painting was made. Decoration and perfume. How about food? Sure, why not? Moderns will eat rose petals, certainly rose oil. Romans, by AD 79, were well into food as extravagant self-indulgence. Apicius, in his cookbooks, instructs us to take roses fresh from the flower bed, strip off the leaves, remove the white, put them in the mortar, pour over some broth, and rub fine. Add a glass of broth and strain the juice through a colander. Take four brains, skin them, remove the nerves. Crush eight scruples of pepper, moistened with the juice and rub. Thereupon, break eight eggs, add one glass of wine, one glass of raisin wine, and a little oil. Meanwhile, grease a pan, place it on the hot ashes in which pour the above-described material. When the mixture is cooked in the bamale, sprinkle it with pulverized pepper and serve. He also discusses rose wine, not to be confused with grape-bound rosé wine. Lace rose petals with the white parts removed on a thread and immerse in wine for seven days. Then remove the petals from the wine and put new rose petals in, laced in the same manner. Do the same thing for a third time and remove the petals. Sieve the wine, and when you want to drink it, add honey to get rose wine. Be sure to use only the best roses, and ensure that they are free from dew. You can make violet wine in a similar way. Again, flavor with honey. The nutritional value of rose hips was also appreciated. Much vitamin C, so modern science tells us. And roses did enter the informal pharmacopoeia of the day invariably in conjunction with other sometimes unexpected ingredients. Rose oil and ash and grape skins are useful for sprains. Boiled lentils good for hemorrhoids. Rose oil, wine, and maidenhair are said to be good for diaper rash. Also contraception with pomegranate and gum. And no records on the efficacy of this method. Rose juice is used for the ears, sores in the mouth, the gums as a gargle for the tonsils, for the stomach, uterus, rectal trouble, headache, when due to fever, either by itself or with vinegar, to induce sleep or to dispel nausea. As to the seed, the finest is of a saffron color, not more than a year old, and should be dried in the shade. The dark seed is harmful. It is used as a liniment for toothache, as a diuretic, 
It may be applied to the stomach, or, in cases of erysipelas, that is not of long standing. Rose oil, good to have around the house. Mixed with almond oil, vinegar, and water, it relieves headache and hangover. Mixed with honey, it can kill nits and other head parasites. If applied with bread, it can soften abscesses. Make a paste of it with figwood ash, and you can treat burns. A decoction, also with rose oil or honey and pomegranate rind, is good for the ears, kills the little worms in them, and clears away hardness of hearing, vague noises, and singing, incidentally relieving headache and pains in the eyes. And so we end with the poets, who can always find a place for roses in their work. Ovid, always up for attempted seduction, advises the would-be Lothario to et capiti demptas in forepone rosas, take the roses from your head and hang them on her doorpost. Pretty weak Ovid, it must be said, even lame. Horace presents us with a setting design for romantic engagement. Quis multa gracilis te puer in rosa perfusis liquidis urget Ordorabus grato pira sub antro? What perfumed debonair youth is it among the blossoming roses urging himself upon you in the summer grotto? Obviously, this would-be affair is not going to go well. Not all hopes for a happy ending can be met. Propertius tells us, rather melancholically, that Vidi ego adorati victura rosaria paesti sub matutino cocta iacere noto. I have seen red roses of fragrant pestum that promised enduring bloom lying withered by Scirocco's morning blast. And returning to the death motif, we again have Ovid. Nostra tamen iacuere vilut pre mortua membra. Turpiter hesterna languidiora rosa. But my body lay in disgrace as though already dead, more jaded than the rose of yesterday. Body being one translation of Latin membra, there is another. We are talking about Ovid, the love poet, after all. So much for roses. Next time, we are in June. Many things happened in June of 8079, one of them highly consequential. Let's just leave it at that for the time being. As always, if you enjoy this stuff, please consider tossing something into the dip jar. Any cost sharing would be appreciated. Also, just plain liking and sharing. Until next time, thank you for listening.